We are glad to make all of our Jcast Network podcasts free for our listeners. However, they are not free to produce and host. Please consider making a donation to Jcast Network to help support our work by visiting jcastnetwork.org slash donate. Thanks for your support. You are listening to The Stender with Rabbi Michael Knopf, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about Rabbi Knopf, please visit mikeknopf.com. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Some of you perhaps may have uh, heard me relay this story before because I'm fond of it. My rabbi, uh, Sharon Browse, uh, tells a story of when, uh, uh, in the early days of uh, her uh, revolutionary congregation in Los Angeles, Ikar, uh, was also the height of the uh, genocide in Darfur. And the premise of Ikar is that it was a, a community that stood at the intersection of spirituality and social justice. And so she would routinely... Uh, stand up on Shabbat morning and give sermons in one way or another related to the atrocities that were happening in Darfur. She would do this week after week, and one week at Kiddush, a congregant came up to her and said, Rabbi, I I appreciate hearing about the genocide in Darfur, but I'd also like, you know, from time to time for you to speak about my own personal spiritual journey, my own uh, inner life, my own relationship with God, my my own Jewish uh, my own Jewish path, and Rabbi Browse, who has not a little bit of chutzpah in her, looks at her congregant and says, "Of course, my friend. Of course, of course. Tell you what, as soon as the genocide in Darfur is over, I'll talk about your personal spiritual journey." I say that story because I desperately wanted today to talk about something that was unrelated to what was going on in the world. Uh, I had a nice Devar Torah planned out about uh, the nature of God and uh, our relationship to God, uh, connected to the uh, opening uh, commandment in the Ten Commandments, I am the Lord your God who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage, and there's a beautiful midrash about it. I'm happy to relay that Devar Torah to you over lunch. Uh, but if this was a normal week, if this is a normal Shabbat, then I would give that Devar Torah. But I don't think we're living in normal times. And I can't give that Devar Torah this Shabbat. So here's what I want to say. One of my favorite movies, as I imagine it is for some of you here, is A Few Good Men. It's Aaron Sorkin at his best. And uh, it's also, it was a play, I think, before his movie. You could still see it as a play, I think. But the movie is incredible. Uh, Aaron Sorkin at his best, Jack Nicholson at his best, Tom Cruise at his best. Demi Moore, I don't know what happened to her, but she's also at her best. It's a great, great film. If you haven't seen it, you should. And it's one of those movies that really stands up to uh, repeat viewings, right? So anytime that it's on TV, I'll sit down and watch it because it can be just seen over and over again. And the premise of A Few Good Men, uh, for those of you who need a refresher, uh, is that uh, there is a, uh, a death in a, uh, in a marine training camp. And uh, the two Marines that are uh, seen as being responsible for the death are being court-martialed. And their defense, their argument, 
is that they were following orders. That they were ordered by their highest ranking officer, who is the one played by Jack Nicholson, to, uh, to use severe tactics to bring uh, a kind of weak soldier into line. And through following this series of orders, they ended up killing this Marine. And so it's a morality play of sorts about this question of what a soldier should do when given an immoral order. And it's in many ways a, a play based on, uh, based on things like the Nuremberg trials after the Holocaust, when soldiers from the Nazi regime, members of the German army and members of the SS are brought before an international court and tried for crimes against humanity and one after the other, their argument was, we were simply following orders. We were simply obeying the law. And it begs a profound and interesting question. If the law commands us, or if we're in the military, if a superior officer, but essentially it's the same thing, if the law commands us to do something immoral, what ought our response be? Is there an inherent morality in following the law regardless of what the law says? Or is there a higher morality to which we are accountable that says if the law violates that higher morality, we are duty-bound to disobey it? Now, there has been, and will, I imagine, continue to be, a lot of ink spilled on this subject. It's a complicated question because on some level, if you were to say that uh, the answer is yes, every law is inherently moral. There's an inherent morality in following the law and we ought to follow the law. If we were to abide by that principle exclusively, we could allow for monstrosities to take place in the name of the law. On the other hand, if you were to follow exclusively the principle that there is a higher morality in place and that if there is a law that's immoral, we are duty-bound to disobey it, well, that is challenging because morality is somewhat subjective. And what I see as being immoral may not be what you see as being immoral or you see as being immoral, and then you risk anarchy because everybody does in the language of the book of Judges what is right in his or her own eyes, and you have no reliable law and order. You have nothing kind of uh, keeping the body politic together. The law is important because it enables us to r rely on each other, to know what we can expect of one another, to know what, how you're likely to behave and how I'm likely to behave, that is an important thing for society to be founded upon, that, that those structures are important and do contain within themselves an inherent morality. The Torah portion this week, Parshat Yitro, I think offers an important principle to meditate upon. It begins with a conversation about law and order. It begins with a discussion of judges and of jurisprudence. So Moses is sitting as the sole judge of the entire people of Israel. All, uh, what, 600,000 plus men 
above the age of 20. So if you include women and children in that, we're talking probably, if you believe the Bible's counting, probably something like 1.5 to 2 million people. And Moses is the only judge for those 1.5 to 2 million people. And his father-in-law, Yitro, his father-in-law, Jethro, comes and greets him in the wilderness, sees Moses sitting in judgment day in and day out from sunrise to sundown and late at, into the night, sees him sitting in judgment over people and sees this is not good. Moses is going to kill himself and probably the people too by sitting in judgment like that. So Jethro advises Moses to set up a system of courts and justices, find upstanding people of of integrity and wisdom, and create a hierarchy of of, of a justice system so that minor cases can be brought to minor courts, and if there are difficult cases, they can be brought to the higher courts. And ultimately, if a case is too baffling for any other judge to decide and requires you, your unique wisdom, your unique presence, your unique involvement, Moses, if any case requires that, it'll go to you. And so you have a system of law and order. And that works for normal cases. But if the story were to end there, I don't think we would have gotten the revelation at Mount Sinai, which comes a couple of chapters later. And the revelation of Mount Sinai starts with the following premise. I am the Lord your God who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You may not have other gods before me. Elohim acherim al panai. You shall not have other gods before me. Now, that is puzzling in a certain sense because God has just demonstrated to, uh, to the Israelites and to Egyptians and to all the world that there is no power in the cosmos greater than God. Pharaoh might have been the only other contender for that crown, right, or some of the other gods, but God laid waste to Pharaoh and to Egypt and presumably to anything that their gods could have or might have done. So why would God need to command, Lo yelcha Elohim acherim apanai? You should not have any other gods before me. Of course, the Israelites would, might say you would think that we shouldn't have other gods before you. You're the only one. You're the only relevant one anyway. But there's another way of looking at that verse. Elohim acherim, which we usually translate as other gods, the Hebrew word Elohim doesn't only mean God. That same word, that same root, also means judges. It means law. And so maybe what God is saying there is that I... And the only law. I am the only law to follow. I am the only law to whom you're responsible. I am the sole judge. Now there may be, on a more practical plane, systems of justice and systems of law that are present within your society. We talk about that in the chapters before when Jethro helps Moses set up the system of courts. But ultimately... You shall have no other law 
besides me. You shall have no other law besides mine. It evokes, or I should say, it is later evoked, by Martin Luther King Jr., among others, who wrote from a Birmingham jail that there are two laws, that there is man's law and there is God's law. And a human being is duty-bound to obey the laws of men, except in those instances when those laws do not comport with God's law. And when those laws do not comport with God's law, which he understood above all to argue for the inherent equality of human beings and their status, the equal status that they ought to have under the law. He said, when the law conflicts, when the human law conflicts with God's law, a person of faith, and he was talking in that letter to Christian and Jewish clergy who were criticizing his civil disobedience in Birmingham, that a person of faith is duty-bound to violate man's law in order to follow God's law. Now I get that there is something unsettling and unnerving about that premise, because as I said before, human beings experience and understand God differently, and if everybody followed that premise and that principle all the time, there could be anarchy. But I don't think that Dr. King was arguing for anarchy. And I don't think God is arguing for anarchy. I think God is arguing in the Ten Commandments for a a normal system of jurisprudence that we all have obedience to, except in the most rare of circumstances, that where that law violates God's law. And not only that, but to always have in our mind who we are ultimately accountable to, what our law and our society is ultimately accountable to, and what to have as a frame of reference when we are crafting the laws that govern us. Or if we're judges, how to interpret and apply the laws that are governing us. In other words, there is not necessarily inherent morality to law. There is a morality that exists outside of law to which the law is accountable. I've been thinking about this a lot because we live in a time in which... I've seen, and I imagine you have as well, an uptick in instances of civil disobedience. I saw just a couple of weeks ago about 80 rabbis and Jewish leaders staging a sit-in in Congress at the Capitol in favor of the extension of protections to the individuals that we call dreamers. Those individuals who were brought to this country as children by parents without the proper legal documentation for immigration and who technically live illegally in this country 
but under no decision and no fault of their own. And so this group of rabbis and Jewish leaders, among others, staged a sit-in at the Capitol in order to defend those dreamers. And the argument that they made is that, technically speaking, those dreamers are in violation of the law. But in God's law, no human being is illegal. In God's law, the laws that govern us should extend compassion and magnanimity to people like dreamers. And even more than that, they might argue that for our law to comport with God's law, we need a radical rethinking of how immigration works in the United States in the first place to make it less racially based and less racially motivated, to make it more inclusive and more befitting a God that is the God of all humanity and all the world. Now, you might disagree with their premise. You might disagree with their action. But I would say that those rabbis, at least insofar as they saw it, were applying the principle given to us in the Torah portion. Lo yelecha Elohim acherim alpenai. There is no law that supersedes God's law. And the reason I felt compelled to give this sermon today, to point out that passage today, is because I think that we are in something of a crisis as a country. Because we are a country with a solid and admirable tradition of law and order. We are a country that has norms, not written into the law, but norms that have long governed us as a self-governing people of fidelity to the law and honor to the law. And those norms work when the people practicing them are honorable people. When there is a sense of a social compact between those who are in our society that Yes, even though the law may not prohibit me from doing X, Y, or Z thing, I'm not going to do it because it's still the wrong thing to do. And so I think part of the crisis we are in in this moment is does our tradition of law and order put us at a higher risk for the very abuse of that law and order that the law and order itself was trying to protect us from. And in this, I am heavily influenced by a legal theorist named Lon Fuller. And Lon Fuller wrote what I think is an explosive article about a legal philosophy called positivism. Positivism basically says that, uh, that the law is the law, that there's no morality outside the law, that the law itself is inherently moral because it's the law, 
And judges are duty-bound to apply the law as it's written and not as they wish it were or as they want it to be. It's a theory that favors the law as it is rather than as it ought to be. And he argues, I think extremely convincingly, that it was a 75-year tradition of legal positivism in Germany before the rise of Hitler that enabled and empowered that rise. Because you have a tradition in Germany before Hitler comes to power of acquiescence to the letter of the law. And there is, there are powerful philosophical legal opinions, moral opinions in this long trajectory of German history that give powerful arguments in favor of that approach to the law. And so it is perhaps not surprising that in that context, someone like Hitler can rise to power perfectly lawfully and commit atrocities, all of which were perfectly legal. And it begs the question of what one is to do in a society that has a tradition of fidelity to law and order, to that norm, and what happens in that kind of society when the abnormal happens. And I watched the State of the Union address earlier this week, and it seemed to me that this is the moment in which we find ourselves, in which our respect for our institutions and our traditions cannot contain the weight of the assault against them by people who have no respect for them, but are utilizing them to their advantage. And so, the State of the Union address looked perfectly normal, like every other State of the Union address I've ever seen. I haven't seen as many as some of you, but that I've ever seen. It looked perfectly normal. And it belied the incredible abnormality of our moment. And in some ways, arguably, I suppose, the person giving the speech in the first place. So what do we do in a society that has fidelity to law and order, but lives in abnormal times? And I think as Jews, the answer is contained in our Torah portion. I am the Lord your God who brought you forth out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You may not have other gods before me. You may have no other laws before me. Dr. King argued to us and for us over 50 years ago that we have a choice sometimes between obeying man's law and obeying God's law. And sometimes the obligation we have is not to the law itself, but to the higher moral authority that grants us the ability to live by that law in the first place. Shabbat Shalom.